I think if Bitcoin didn't exist, CBDCs would be the most egregious tool of tyranny that humanity's ever seen. But Bitcoin is going to be such a powerful check on CBDCs that if the powers that be want anybody to adopt their CBDCs, they will need to be less egregious than they would have been otherwise because they'll, they don't want to force everybody into Bitcoin. If Bitcoin exists and they create death coin, everybody will go tomorrow into Bitcoin. They know they can't make it as bad as they could have, right? And so I think that's my, my optimistic outlook is having a good form of money present next to those CBDCs will make those not as bad as they would have been otherwise. This episode of Bitcoin People proudly brought to you by Looking Glass Education, bringing you easy to read, beginner-friendly financial education that helps you take control of your financial future. And it's all free, so go check it out. Really excited to have with me today, Brian DeMint, who is Marketing Director of Orange Pill App and also author of the great and wonderful Bitcoin Evangelism. Welcome to Bitcoin People, Brian. Uh, I'm very, very happy to be here. Thank you for the warm introduction. Um, couldn't have done it better myself. So thank you so much. <laughs> lovely, lovely stuff. Brian, I'm going to kick off uh, for those who don't know you uh, with a bit of background, if you wouldn't mind, that sets up a bit about who you are as a human being, what matters to you in life and why. Uh, and let's see if I can get down a little bit of how you stumbled across Bitcoin, your rabbit hole. Off you go. Over to you. Yeah, well, I think most of my my moral center comes from my religious faith. I'm a, I'm a I don't know if you want to call it devout. I, that sounds weird. We don't really say that in our current culture, but I'm, I'm a I'm evangelical Christian. Just like I go to a non-denominational church. We, we, we worship God. We pray to God. We, we have community, all those sorts of things. I read the Bible. I believe the Bible is true. So that's where my, my moral center comes from. Um, and it's not because I think that like the Bible is a book of rules that I think I need to follow in order to, to gain favor from God. I, I believe that God's already forgiven me because I've asked for that forgiveness. I think what the Bible to me is and why it, it really compels my behavior is because I think it's the world's best ever self-help book. And I don't want to diminish the Bible in any because I think it's a great source of truth. But what I mean by that is the things that it says in there, the rules that it has are, are rules like love your neighbor. It's rules like don't steal from other people. It's rules like, like obey your father and mother. Now, these things, if we can bear doing them, we actually live a better life. And now the ultimate purpose of the Bible isn't just to be a self-help thing. It's to lead you to a better path towards God. But if you want to look at it just as a, what could a, an atheist get out of this book? I believe anybody can read it and the challenges that it puts us to, the, to have a higher moral standard is a, is a really powerful thing. And I think we're seeing that in our culture right now is that people that are called to a higher moral arc for their life, like get out of your bed, you know, when you get out of bed in the morning, make your bed right away, right away, brush your teeth, do the things you're supposed to do, get after it, work hard. All of those things are helping make building blocks for a better society. And I think largely society's lost our way on that 
over the last decades. And so we're now just seeing a pushback. We're, we're seeing a resurgence in people saying, it's okay to say that I'm striving for moral behavior. Like for a while, when I was growing up, like it was, it was very cool to be like, the moral people, the good people are doing that. So we're going to go this way. We're going to be kind of counterculture. Like that was very cool when I, when I was young, but that was also cool in society. We're getting to a point where it's, it's, it's okay to exalt and adore the people in society that are taking responsibility for their actions, whether they're Christian, Muslim, whatever, like people that are, that, that, that embrace a higher moral calling. We're recognizing that that's ultimately better for me and my neighbors. And so that really easily leads into Bitcoin. Um, I think that it's a high moral calling when you recognize what Bitcoin is, that it's that it's a better form of money, that our existing system of money enables oppression. Like it, it literally is built into the way the system operates is that one party or some parties get to oppose or excuse me oppress other people in the system and the system only perpetuates if that racket continues um when you find bitcoin and when you find the level playing field that bitcoin is yes michael saylor can participate in bitcoin or the imf or the the, the federal reserve can participate in Bitcoin, that's fine. They're not excluded from it. But also the, the poor mother from the Bronx can do that as well while she's raising two kids. And she plays by the exact same rules as anyone else in the system does. And so people that come from a, a, a place in life where they're, they, we, we see the value in striving for things that aren't easy, but they're good, and we realize that things that aren't easy, but they're good, they make for a better world. Um, something like Bitcoin, it's a high calling. It, when, when you embrace Bitcoin, you don't really have the freedom to just like shut up and not talk about it. You feel compelled, like you can do that, but you, we just feel compelled to share that truth with other people. Um, one of the things that I say in my book is that it's like, it's like seeing somebody that's on a raft in the middle of the ocean and they're they're dying from dehydration and they're drinking salt water because that's the easiest thing to do, right? There's no hope in sight. There's nobody around and they're going to drink salt water because maybe they don't know. And, and, and they see this thing that they think is going to help them. It's like the fiat system. People continue to work harder and, and do more to get less out of the system because they don't recognize that the system itself is actually poisoning them. Just like the salt water is poisoning that person. And so if you're sitting on that raft with that person, you can sit by and allow them to continue to drink salt water, or you could give them the hard truth that, yes, I know that actually tastes good right now and it feels like it's what you need, but what we need to do is we need to abstain from that toxic water and we need to wait for the rescue to come. We need to wait for something that is actually going to fix that problem. And so it's like that same kind of moral conundrum that we have, like that would be immoral in my perspective. And I'm probably most Bitcoiners perspective to sit by and watch that person kill themselves and poison themselves. And so as Bitcoiners, we see people that are strung out on the fiat system. And we believe it is our moral obligation because it's not easy, but it's good. And so society will be better off. The next generation will be better off because of the difficult decisions that we made for, we, it's one of those things that, that uh, oppressive governments like to talk about the greater good, but there is something that's powerful about 
benefiting the greater good, something beyond yourself. And so I think that as a Christian, I, I share that ethos, but as a Bitcoiner, I share that ethos. And guess what? One of my favorite people in the world is Knut's Van Holm, who always makes fun of me for for being a Christian. Like, like he's, he's an ardent atheist, but guess what? We share some of the same moral code and we have some of the same mission in life because there's this, there's this through line that we both see and we both have complete clarity on. I do. I agree with you that it's a great unifier of people from all walks of life, from all religions, from all political, uh, directions you know left right libertarian that there's it's a it's a melting pot i mean i i've met a lot of christians in this space more so than anywhere else in life and maybe that's because i live in australia and it's just not as strong a christian community here as prominent a christian community as in a as in america uh but what i'm loving is perhaps as we get bigger there's a more and more diverse community and at the end of the day to the degree that yes money is political at the moment because of its connection with the state because it is it is one with the state but to the degree that money has typically been a tool or perhaps should be a tool that's a political um so Bitcoin is truly that. Uh, and and so it draws in people from all walks of life and who see it and perceive it and preach it from their point of view. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. And, and every innovation ever has always either been political or it's had a moral conflict. There were people that when electricity was 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 being propagated and it was it was growing, there was people that literally thought it was it was immoral. I mean, I guess to this day there's still people. There's there's the Amish that that believe that that technology is something that we that that ultimately may, you know ruins society. But I think it was it was much more prevalent at that time for people to think that radio frequencies and electricity were like the dark arts. <laughs> there were people that made a moral case for why we shouldn't interact with these things. So if we're if we're put off by oh, I don't want to interact with Bitcoin because it's political right now. This is like the softest any innovation's ever been. Bitcoin's the biggest thing to ever hit the world as far as an innovation or a technological leap or a discovery. Um, And yet we're facing, it's a lot of opposition, but it's less opposition than many other things faced in the past. So let's buck up and get after it because we've got a good thing going on here. We've got the biggest revolution that's ever happening. And we're winning. Like we're actually seeing ourselves win, the, ourselves being Bitcoin win in real time. We're getting W's every single day, whether it's at the, the international level, the government level, or just more people. There's more people in Bitcoin today than there was yesterday. And tomorrow there's going to be. So we're getting these wins all over the place. And so, um, yeah, you're right. It's going to permeate every jurisdiction, every church, every synagogue, every every school, it's going to be there. It's going to be status quo. It's going to be presupposed at some point, but we're in that that difficult growing pain stage and, and that's okay. Let's embrace it. So that's enormously optimistic and possibly more so than many folk in our community feel. Uh, we're seeing a lot of pushback as well. Uh, there's still a lot of concerns that, you know, we've got the Genslers of the world, uh, you know, really dragging their feet with it, with it at best. 
mm -hmm. uh, but really trying to hold it back or push it back into a can, which of course we understand can't be done, but certainly on and off ramps can be shut down. They could pause it, they could push it underground mm -hmm. for a period of time in the West. I think it would be very difficult to do for any extended period. Uh, what's your take on that? Because you're sounding much more optimistic than I would say the average Bitcoiner. Yeah, I mean, I think that Gary Gensler, it's very clear that that his political party or whoever's pulling the strings there, it, that those aren't his actual individual opinions. I would suggest for anybody go on YouTube and you can actually go and watch MIT courses. Like in general, this is what's amazing about YouTube is you can go watch MIT courses on whatever you want. But the Gary Gensler courses on Bitcoin are on there and they're actually really good. Like the guy can teach Bitcoin very well. He's very articulate. He understands the decentralization. He understands the, the nature of securities when it comes to, to crypto coins and tokens and things like that. He has a really good perspective on it. Um, and so, you know, anyways, I'm not saying that that's going to, you know, all of a sudden he's going to have this moment where he's going to say no to the people that are telling him what to do. But what I'm saying is that I'm seeing and hearing about more and more people in high powered places that are doing their homework on Bitcoin. And I think that it's really easy for us as Bitcoiners because a lot of us are kind of like conspiracy theorists in general. And, and that, ter that term still washed out. I would put myself in that category. Like I'm very skeptical of most things in general. And I think that I, I, I tend to more often than not say, oh, the government's in on it or these people are in on it. And I was just out in Washington, D.C. with Orange Pill App a couple of weeks ago and with Dennis Porter and Satoshi Action Fund and, and, and a bunch of other guys. And we took uh, 535 copies of the Bitcoin standard. We passed them out to every senator, every representative and their staff. Um, and, and even uh, Nick Batia was there. So he brought, um, I don't know, 100 copies of, of layered money. And then Jason Mayer was there with a progressive case for Bitcoin. So anytime there was a Democrat, we'd like run over and get Jason. We're like, hey, Jason, talk to this, talk to this Democrat and, <laughs> and give, him, give him your book, right? And so as we were walking around, yes, there's corruption and there's collusion and there's the powers that be there are people that sit in rooms and try and, and decide what's going to happen in the world but there's also a lot of people in positions of power that are useful idiots that will be pushed whichever way the wind blows and so if bitcoin gains enough momentum they will be pushed in that direction so there's those people. And then there's also people that are genuine in those positions of power um, that, that will ask questions. And just like you, just like me, I was a skeptic at one point. I was somebody that called you know, Bitcoin a Ponzi scheme and a pyramid scheme and all those things because we don't know. We're not, we don't know enough about money to actually make good arguments against Bitcoin. But if I was in a position of power back when I was a skeptic, somebody would have said, oh, Brian's just part of the corrupt system. It's like, no, I was just actually ignorant to Bitcoin. Thankfully, I didn't have any power back then. I didn't have any influence. I wasn't a representative or a congressman or anything like that back when I didn't know about Bitcoin. But if I had been and I'd been against Bitcoin and made these kind of dumb arguments against Bitcoin, it would have been really easy to say, oh, he's just a part of the establishment. He's just he's just a, a pet shill for the Federal Reserve. When in actuality, I was somebody that just needed to be orange pilled. And so I'm confident that there's a lot of people in our positions of power that fall into those three categories. 
useful idiots, the actual corrupt, and people just waiting to be orange-pilled. And so two of those three categories are very optimistic. And even the corrupt ones, when Bitcoin becomes powerful enough, guess what? There's going to be plenty of people lobbying for Bitcoin too. So, you know, I think we can win on all fronts. Um, and here's one of the other optimistic things too that I would bring from when we were going around. And it was actually, the, the American system's beautiful in this regard. We just, we didn't get an invitation to go to the Capitol building. We just walked in. They just let you go in. They, they you know, you go through a metal de detector and stuff. But you're just going to all these senators and congressmen's office. You get to just open the door and say hello. And uh, sometimes the, the politicians in there, but their staff is always in there. You, they usually have like four to six staff members, interns or people that are actually paid and work for them. And more often than not, this is the really cool part. When you would hand them the book, sometimes they would, they'd be, oh yeah, I'm going to give it to the senator. They're, they're really interested to find out about, about, about Bitcoin. Who knows? Maybe that's, that's you know lip service. But what most of them would say is, guess what? I'm going to give this directly to Tim or to Sarah because they're the staffer that the senator tasked with studying Bitcoin. We heard that over and over and over. To me, that was a much more like genuine response because if you told me the senator is going to read it, I'm like, yeah, he has a lot of things that he's supposed to read, right? Probably not going to read it. But the staffer that just has one job, it's just to study the crypto blockchain Bitcoin industry. They're going to sit down and read this book, and then they're going to be the source of information for this congressperson. We saw that a lot. So yes, the halls of power and the halls of corruption that as a, as a conspiracy theorist, I was just like, this place is probably really dark. There were a lot of positive conversations that, that happened there that even somebody that's very skeptical like myself was, was, left that situation feeling very optimistic. Wow. Now you've planted seeds of ways and means that I might see if I can approach some of our state and federal um, politicians here in Australia. Really exciting stuff. Have you had any feedback from any of that just out of interest? Have you had people coming back to you and going, hey, thanks for the book guy, you know? No, no. So all of what we put in the book, and so I, I wouldn't get any of that feedback. Um, you, that'd be a good question for Dennis Porter because so- right. Orange Pill App actually came up with the idea for this whole thing. It wasn't me. I, I do all the marketing, so it should have been the marketing guy. Actually, Mateo, the founder, he uh, he tweeted out one morning just kind of as a goof. He said, if Saifedean joins Orange Pill App, we're going to buy 535 copies of the Bitcoin standard for every representative and senator in the U.S. Congress. And then like five minutes later, the tweet below it. And this is funny because he and I run the Twitter account. So I wake up to these notifications and... Uh, the, the tweet below it five minutes later goes, oh, shoot, should have checked the price. That's like $9,000 worth of books. And but then we just left it. We just left it because we're like, this is great marketing. Like Safedine is not going to join. An hour later in the comments, Safedine just joined Orange, Orange Pill app. So now we're like, oh, shoot, we have to buy all these, <laughs> all these books. <laughs> so we had this great creative idea that kind of blew up geyser fund. If people don't know about geyser fund, it's like Kickstarter for Bitcoin. So if, if there's projects that are Bitcoin oriented projects, you can go and contribute to them. If you're going to write a book or do something in Bitcoin, you can raise funds. You can say, Hey, I'm doing this project and maybe the Bitcoin community will fund it. Well, geyser fund, the CEO Mick came to us and said, Hey, Anything that 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 we raise for this, we'll match it. Geyser Fund will match it. So we actually got all the books plus mine and Mateo's airfare to paid for by the Bitcoin community to go out and actually do this whole thing. And then Dennis Porter came along and he said, you guys have no idea what you're doing in Washington, D.C., do you? And I said, you're right. Like, 
we need the professionals. And so uh, Dennis Porter from Satoshi Action Fund said, you know what, let me organize this. So he set up meetings. So we actually had one-on-one -on -one meetings with some of the, the, the politicians, like more than just going in their office and handing them the book. We sat in committee hearings. We did all these different things because they were so well organized. I mean, Satoshi Action Fund is so well organized. They actually have an apartment that is one block away from the Capitol. So we had all the books sent there. I mean, we literally had no idea how this was going to work if it wasn't for Dennis Porter and the Satoshi Action Fund people. So all that to say is we put a Satoshi Action Fund thing in the book. So anybody that had questions was reaching out to Dennis Porter, who was probably a better source to follow up with these politicians rather than a bunch of guys that were just like, yeah, we want to, we wanted Safedean <laughs> to join, to join the app. So <laughs> good for you. That is just exceptionally enterprising. I love the initiative. Uh, so, and that's what it's all about, isn't it? It's like just a bunch of people bootstrapping this thing kind of, you know, and I'm late to the party relative to many. So let's get into your book a little bit. As I mentioned to you before the show, I've earmarked three, um, three pages in particular that I'd like to discuss. But given, um, I mean, it's your book, are there any elements of it before I start picking and choosing that you would particularly like to discuss that you think are mm. particularly pertinent or don't get enough coverage in the Bitcoin world or are a great introduction to the newcomer? What would be your preferred way of, of starting this? Yeah, I mean, I think that when we talked off off air, it, it was something that we both shared an opinion on is why Bitcoin has value. And I think a lot of Bitcoiners give a really good, accurate answer to that is that nothing has inherent value and everything's relative to what somebody's going to pay for it. That is the right answer, right? But that's not what people want to hear when they're getting orange pilled. So there's a there's a chapter devoted to this this idea of why Bitcoin has value. And hopefully we, I do want to go into that a bit. Um, but as far as kind of like the commissioning of the book, what I hope, hope what people walk away with from the book is not something that I said, but actually something that I a quote that I quoted in the book. It's R. Buckminster Fuller. And uh, I'm going to say it so probably somewhat wrong, but he says that if you want to change the or basically the existing system has never been changed by people fighting the existing reality. The only way things change is by when you build a separate system and it's better because people will just naturally gravitate towards that. And so that's what that's what we're doing in Bitcoin. Like it's kind of like, yeah, rage against the machine, the Federal Reserve's a problem, the fiat system's a problem, yada, yada, yada. So like, yeah, we, we need to make those arguments for why people need to leave that system. But hey, we don't need to burn down buildings. We don't need to punch anybody in the face. I'm a I'm a trained martial artist. I've actually gotten in the cage. I've done cage fights. I I find the sport of fighting very fun, but it has no place in the building of Bitcoin. We don't need to go out with our guy. I'm, I'm a second amendment guy here in the United States. That's fine. We can have our firearms and all that kind of stuff, but we don't need that for the propagation of Bitcoin. We, we just need to have a system that functions better. Like imagine if you have two parties, right? Two parties right next door to one another. One has like this loud bumping music and you hear people screaming and hollering. It sounds like a lot of fun. And then the other one sounds like it's just a church. It's quiet. You can hear a pin drop. If you're walking up and you're outside of both of those houses, you're going to go to the party that's rocking. Like it, it, you're, you're going to, you're going to be like, there's no question. You're going to go to the one that sounds more fun. 
that's it. That's build a better system, build something that looks more attractive to people and you will win. And so our Buck, our Buckminster Fuller said that a long, long time ago, and uh, it holds true uh, for, for Bitcoin. So I hope that people read the book. And that's like the essence of what people get is that this system actually is better. Hopefully, if you get to the last page, you say, man, I want to join the better party. I was I was at the lame party this whole time. Um, so that's what I hope people walk away with. But I think the value thing is, is maybe the thing that sat with me the most. That was something that I wrestled with through the early years of Bitcoin. I needed a, I needed that answered for me. But hopefully we can dive into that a bit. Well, let's dive down into your section on value, the value of Bitcoin, uh, because I found it really compelling and I found it broader and more interesting than some of the stuff that we generally talk about in Bitcoin. Uh, you came at it from a range of different angles and you valued it from a number of different perspectives. Uh, one that I found really fascinating was the remittance, the international remittance business, the size and scale of, you know, Visa and the credit cards and PayPal and Swift and kind of international trade, etc. Uh, but you looked at it from a range of different angles. I remember it might have been earlier in the book, actually, where you also compared the market cap to gold and the value proposition of those two things. But throughout this section on why does Bitcoin have value? Yeah, you do touch on the gold. Um, you touch on the value of global money remittance. There's the network effect. You've got digital versus analog. So you really, um, and transportability, which ties into the gold discussion and psychological value. So you, you really tackle it from a lot of different angles. Can we go through a few of those? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so some of those, like the, the remittance numbers, um, you might have to refresh me on the, the exact amount. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think the general argument there is that and the best arguments ever that you can make to somebody when orange pilling are, sorry, my kids are running around here. So we're a homeschool family. So my interviews might, a kid, a little cute face might pop up here sometimes or yell or scream. So anyway, we have a lot of fun around here. <laughs> it's all um, good. <laughs> you know, I, I was inspired by Daniel Prince. I don't know if you watch his podcast. I know, his Daniel, podcast I've got him bit. on my shelf back here somewhere. Oh, yeah, Beautiful <laughs> human being. And like his kids are, are phenomenal. But yeah, like his, his kids are a part of his show. It's amazing. Um, but anyways, the best arguments you can make, and this is in court, this is in, you know, this is in, you know, personal debate, whatever, are prima facie, uh, prima facie arguments, things that are apparent on their face. Like when I say it to you, the answer is obvious to you, right? I don't need to prove it through facts or data. Facts and data, really, really important. And there's people that want to hear facts and data, but most of the time we don't have our numbers in front of us. And so we're, we're at dinner. And how do I explain this like really like factual point if I don't know the exact number? So an argument like this is why does, you know, somebody asked me, why does Bitcoin have value? Um, you know, it, it seems like it, it is nothing. So therefore it has no value. Well, okay. Uh, do you think, like, would you be happy with owning the, the the company Visa? Like, what if you owned Visa and MasterCard? What if you owned Visa and MasterCard and American Express? Like, that'd be pretty valuable, right? What if you own those entire networks? They're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, what would you say that value is? Like, a billion dollars? And they're like, yeah, it's probably like in the billions, right? You're like, yeah, hundreds of billions of dollars. 
is what just those companies are, right? They're just, they're just a piece of the pie, but that's hundreds of billions of dollars that those companies are worth. Why are those companies worth anything? What do they do? All they do is send value from one person to another. So the act of sending value at the bare minimum, the bare minimum floor is hundreds of billions of dollars in terms of the innate value of Bitcoin. And, and those types of arguments I find that are the most compelling to people. It's like, yeah, you're right. Like I would be happy owning those three companies. And then the light bulb goes off that you explain, well, those are like American-based companies. Like we're not even including Discover and Diners Club Card and Swift and all these, you know, PayPal and Venmo. We're not even including all of these other ones. So you have to understand that, that this is far beyond that. And then one of the argument, you know, one of the points that, that I make, like you said, right after that is that the digital versus analog thing. Well, digital things always have more value than analog. So if we say that Bitcoin is going to be, it's the digital gold and, and gold's valued at $10, $10 trillion market cap. Well, there's a good argument to say that Bitcoin should be valued at somewhere at least 10 times more valuable than the market cap of gold, because there's no precedent in history for the digital thing that disrupts the analog thing to not be 10 times more valuable. So for, for example, like I think the, one of the examples I use in the book, book is paper maps versus digital maps. Um, we all like as kids, our parents had paper maps. We even had them. I, you know, I had them when I started driving, we keep one in the trunk. If like I got lost or something like that, but we would only pull the paper map out once or twice a year. I rarely used it, right? And it was if we were going on a trip the night before you'd plot out your course and all that kind of stuff. It was so infrequently used. The, the, the annual sales of a paper map were like something I think in their best year ever, they accounted for about $40 million worth of sales in paper maps. What This begs the question, what's the value of a digital map today? And, and how much utility comes out of a digital map? Digital maps account for trillions of dollars of economic value in our society. And you can make the argument, you could scale it back and it, it's, it's at least hundreds of billions of dollars in actual dollars, but in, in terms of efficiencies that are created through, through digital maps. Now we're, we're talking about industries that could not have existed otherwise. Uber, Lyft, DoorDash, uh, any kind of food delivery service, any kind of uh, delivery logistics services, um, the efficiencies that have been created um, within Amazon, Amazon could not exist at the scale that it, it, that it exists at today without digital maps. Um, uh, our car, my, my car, I, I, like I said, with a paper map, I used it twice per year, maybe. With a digital map, every time I sit in my car, my digital map pops up. I'm constantly, every time I drive, using or at least interacting with a digital map. Now, a digital map tells me when there's an object in the road. It tells me when there's a police officer down the street. It tells me when I'm being, when I'm in excess of the speed limit. Digital maps have so much more functionality. And when we, when we, when we get more functionality, we find more utility for that thing. And then that thing creates more value. And so the digital version always creates at least 10 times more value than the analog version of it. And here's the, here's the kicker. It's not that when we only had paper maps, that humanity's need for navigation was only $40 million a year. It was just that paper, paper maps could only unlock 
$40 million worth of value to humanity. We're finding that when we get better maps, we have a greater and greater need for navigation. And so we have physical currency, like we have like digital representations of it, but natively our currencies are still physical. And so we haven't unlocked all of the utility, all of the value that currency itself can have. But now we have Bitcoin, we have a digitally native currency that we're finding more utility for. I use Bitcoin every single day through Twitter to help promote posts and share things. And, and, and I send I, through the Lightning Network, I send bits of sats to people every single day to pay invoices. I buy my meat with, with Bitcoin. I do all sorts of things that I never, now maybe meat I could have bought before, but being able to, to, to decentralize the way that I advertise for my company through Twitter without an intermediary is providing entirely new use cases for money that didn't exist before. So if the total value of currency in a physical state was say um a hundred trillion dollars say if you you added up all of the currencies in all of the world ever well physical currencies were a hundred trillion dollar i mean there's a there's a case to be made for a quadrillion dollar value of money that's just more functional because we're unlocking humanity's need for those things wow okay that's Really cool to think about it that way. Uh, and I think maybe because it's in stark contrast to say how the gold bugs talk about it. Mm. So the gold bugs are still arguing that Bitcoin doesn't have the utility of gold. It's not used in electronics. It's not used for anything physical. And the way I see it is that pure money shouldn't have utility outside of that of currency. The premium on gold is not because of its utility, it's because of its store of value proposition, uh, as opposed to silver, which has greater supposed utility, but much smaller premium in terms of store of value, which speaks to the kind of scarcity proposition. And you're taking it orders of magnitude beyond that um how do you speak to have you come across gold bugs i know people like lawrence lapada um busily trying to convert the gold bugs in the world uh robert breedlove had old school breed uh, uh gold bug on recently and mm. and i would say failed to convince her uh mm. beyond the utility argument she was stuck on that how do you how would you talk to the gold bugs of the world well i was raised in a gold bug family like I, we we <laughs> so my around my dinner table, my, my family became dysfunctional in my teen years, but in my my young years, I'm I'm very blessed and fortunate to have have parents that like we would talk about money at the table. Um, my last name is Dement, so it literally means coin minter. Like somewhere in our, our family history, we were like coin minter. So we would talk about that. I grew up, like I shared this in the book, I grew up on sovereign way. So you, you as a kid, you ask your parents, like, what does sovereign mean? So we talk about money and sovereignty and gold. And so at the time, when I was a kid, gold was the best answer to those questions. And so yeah, my, my family, my, my many of my friends are gold bugs, and even a, a special place in my heart, I, I have for gold, because it's, it's the analog version of what I love so much about Bitcoin. Um, but I think that gold bugs are pragmatists, meaning they do things because they see it working. 
And so I think the best way we're going to con convince gold bugs is just by allowing them to see Bitcoin working, um, allowing it to see them store value over time. So it's going to take time for them. But one of the arguments that I find most powerful um, for the gold bug is Bitcoin's proof of work mining. And the way I say this is because the reason why gold bugs don't like Bitcoin is because you can't touch it. You can't make a bowl out of it. Yada, 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 those arguments. <clears throat> and I'd say, I know you want something physical. Now, Bitcoin's the thing, the only digital thing that you're going to get close to touching because you can actually touch electricity, which is the very thing that creates Bitcoin. Like you can go touch a hashing, you can go touch an ASIC that's hashing the Bitcoin, like hashing for the nonce to try and mine Bitcoin. So you can go touch that. You can physically shut it off. It's the closest thing you can do to touching something digital. It's the bridge between the digital world and the physical world. And that's why proof of work mining is so important. It anchors Bitcoin in reality. Because when you, when you hear um, Vitalik Buterin talk about Ethereum, he talks about, I mean, they literally call it a, a virtual machine, right? It's everything about Ethereum exists in cyberspace. And to the cyber nerds, that sounds really cool. Like it's every, but if you want to be the most balanced between physical natures of law, mathematics, and having it, it, it grounded in things that cannot be corrupted, you want it tied back to reality. And so I think that's the appeal that we need to share with gold bugs is, I get it. I know you want to touch it, but you understand things are moving towards digital. Now, that's an inevitability. Everything's going to be digital. At least with Bitcoin, there's still a physical presence. There's still a physical anchor to reality. So that would be my suggestion. It's it's not one of those, those hard things where you're going to say, like, they're going to be like, yeah, you totally won me over. But I think it plants the seed for them to say, okay, I, I can see the tie-in to the physical nature of Bitcoin, and it's not what I was thinking. I can't, you know, use it to, I can't use it in electronics, or I can't use it to make a spoon, but there is something to the physical nature of Bitcoin, and, and they can at least concede that a little bit and still keep their chin up like they weren't just, you know, slam dunked on, we didn't make fun of them, or we didn't make them feel stupid for their argument. Um, we actually kind of validated the argument of why a physical nature does matter to some degree. Hi everyone, have you ever felt like the only Bitcoin enthusiast in your area? I certainly have done. I literally started this podcast because I wanted to meet other Bitcoiners. As it turns out, there was a better way if I had simply joined Orange Pill App. Who knew? Orange Pill App is the ultimate social layer in Bitcoin. It is built by Bitcoiners for Bitcoiners. It is where you will find other Bitcoiners in your area and events in your area, as well as other merchants who take Bitcoin. You will find it on Apple. You will also find it on Android. And if you join using the affiliate link below, you will receive 10,000 cents. So please come on board and I'll look forward to seeing you there. That's great. Uh, I feel like I'm almost using you here to counter a bunch of a bunch of arguments that I come across that we all come across all the time because you've got such clarity and such a, a great way of using physical analogies to support your argument and it makes it incredibly easy and understandable. So I'm going to throw in one from something I was watching yesterday, Klaus Schwab talking about, I thought it was Klaus Schwab talking about CBDCs. It was someone at that kind of 
World Bank, I real high caliber individual, huh? Some, I, it might have been B, BIS. Actually, it could have been BIS. Uh, talking about CBDCs and how fabulous they're going to be, and we're going to make everybody do this, and and it feels right now to me like a race between those who want to shut down and control the world at a really um, granular level who really want to be able to control the masses and put a lid on freedom and creativity and initiative and our fundamental humanness uh, versus Bitcoin. And I'm going to include with Bitcoin the freedom fighters of the world and i'm going to include in that a bunch of kind of very popular podcasters who may or may not be bitcoiners but it feels that they're all part of the same movement to push back against this what we're all seeing this giant black cloud of international cbdc's and the way in which they want to um force all the governments of the world and therefore the people of those governments mm -hmm. under their control how do you see that race how do you perceive that conflict mm -hmm. I, I think you're right I, I think that there is a race i think that you're very accurate in the way you described it, it as a race because whoever wins the the it's almost the hearts and minds we're fighting for, right? Like if, if the CBDCs rolled out tomorrow and everybody all of a sudden, you know, got an extra $50 in their bank account. And then we see that as the cure for inflation, because you know what, guess what? CBDCs can crush inflation in an afternoon because I mean, we can talk about this more, but uh, one of the things that gets lost in the conversation about, um, about inflation is that, it's not just how much money is in the system or how much currency is in the system. It's how fast it's moving through the system, right? And, and if goods and services are being bought with it and stuff. So think about this. If you had programmable money that you can shut off and you can tell everybody, hey, you guys all have $14 to spend today. Three days of that, one day of that, and you've, you've just killed inflation, right? Because, because the velocity of money is no longer happening. And so the CBDCs might be the greatest tool ever for crushing inflation and crushing it very quickly. Um, and, and to say that they wouldn't do that sounds, sounds like, oh, a reasonable thing to say, but listen to Jerome Powell. He literally says at his press conferences, we're raising interest rates to crush demand in the economy. What does crush demand in the economy means? It means people out of work. It means people losing money. It means people in poverty. Like he's using a euphemism of crush demand, but that's what he means. And so people say, oh, they would never just limit your money in your wallet to, to crush inflation, but they would say, oh, it's for the greater good. And so it's your civic duty to, to do these things. So, so yes, I, I do think that if a CBDC rolled out tomorrow and, and won the race, that, that that would be a bad thing. And, and yes, people would be upset about it, but then there would also be this positive side, you know, it'd be kind of like the COVID discussions again is what side are you on? Are you for the greater good? Are you for the individual, you know, screw your freedoms, that type of thing. Um, so Corey Clipson from, from Swan has a great article on this about it's the race for the next 10 million Bitcoiners. I think I, I forget what his, what his number is, but it's that movements happen 
by a small percentage of the population. So we don't need, you know, if they say if there's 8 billion people in the world, we don't need 4 billion people in the world to become Bitcoiners. I think they will. I, I, in my personal opinion, I think over the next 50 years, I think that that many people are certainly going to be Bitcoiners, but we don't need in the next 10 years to be, you know, 50% of the world are Bitcoiners. You just need about 5% of any population to complete a 5% that are unwavering on what they stand for. People that have uh, 5% of the population that are willing to die on the hill. So I don't know if you know about this, but like, I think it's in London where Islamic people, like uh, religious Islamic individuals, they, they eat halal. So it's like kosher in, in Judaism, right? So in, in London, only about seven or 8% of the population are fundamentally religious Muslims, but those people will not eat anywhere that is not halal. They're so rigid in their belief that most restaurants in London are halal restaurants, even though they're not, they're not Muslim religious restaurants, but they're, they have their food standards abide by this food standard of, of the Muslims because they know if they want those customers they need to appeal, even though it seems like it's a small percentage of the population. So all that to say, a small percentage of the population can absolutely shift the way things go for everybody. If they're unwavering, you need an unwavering portion of the population. So that's his point is we need to you know, orange pill the next 10 million Bitcoiners in order to have an unwavering part of the population. One, for this circular economy, right? For people to have a way to opt out, we need enough ranchers, we need enough hairstylists, we need enough people that sew shoes, we need enough of those people that are Bitcoiners that we can have a parallel economy that people can opt out of those CBDCs in um, and an unwavering portion of the population that is not going to get sucked into this. Now, having said all that, my very uh, optimistic outlook on Bitcoin and CBDCs is that I think if Bitcoin didn't exist, CBDCs would be the most egregious tool of tyranny that humanity's ever seen. But Bitcoin is going to be such a powerful check on CBDCs that if the powers that be want anybody to adopt their CBDCs, they will need to be less egregious than they would have been otherwise because they'll, they don't want to force everybody into Bitcoin. If Bitcoin exists and they create death coin, everybody will go tomorrow into Bitcoin. They know they can't make it as bad as they could have, right? And so I think that's my, my optimistic outlook is having a good form of money present next to those CBDCs will make those not as bad as they would have been otherwise. It's like having, you know, it's like not worrying about the bully because you have a giant cage fighter in the corner backing you up, right? Like I don't have to be afraid of the bully because I got somebody bigger and stronger right here that's going to be a check on that bully. Yes, he's bad. Yes, he wants to do bad things to me, but he's not going he's not going to do them because he'll get his butt kicked if he tries anything. You said you're already buying quite a lot of stuff with your sets every day. How substantial you say and we're saying we need a bunch of merchants to come on board basically uh in order to get this over the line and certainly one of the pieces of pushback i get so i was chatting with a cousin about bitcoin last night and her primary question was she actually got a lot of it uh, without having studied or learned very much about it so i was really interested in that but 
one of her concerns was, but I can't buy a house with it. Mm. And I said, look, technically you can, but it's not that easy. Uh, and I do understand, therefore, her misgiving that until it's at that level of usability for her, she's not that interested. What are you seeing as being the uptake? How, how do we even measure, other than the number of wallet holders, how do we measure or is that the only measure and, and how do we keep track of the merchants and how do we know when we're getting close to that tipping point? I mean, I think that's a fair critique from your friend. Like that would really stamp a label on it, right? Like if, or your, excuse me, your cousin, but yeah, that would stamp a label on it. If I can do something of, of matter, like, like a house matters, I'm going to be in here for the rest of my life, or this is going to get passed down to my kids and I can buy that with Bitcoin. That's the biggest validation in the world. If I can buy a couple video game credits online, uh, that seems kind of trivial. And so, yeah, you can use Bitcoin for that. But I just, I say this all the time. We're going to need to sell a billion muffins in Bitcoin before we can sell 10 houses in Bitcoin, right? We need to start small in the economy. And it, so for the for merchants that do things, they sell trinkets, they sell their services. They um, like, for example, my the book, the audio book that, uh, that uh, of Bitcoin evangelism, the guy, I paid him in Bitcoin, you know, like so finding ways to, to do those types of things. And, and he wasn't he was a guy that was kind of into Bitcoin, but. He, he read the book and by the end he was willing to be paid in Bitcoin. Like that was a pretty cool experience that he normally gets paid in fiat. And then by the end of the book got paid in Bitcoin. Um, those things, is, it's just going to happen incrementally. Like we just one step at a time, more people, just like I said earlier, more people have accepted Bitcoin today than they did yesterday. And the same is going to be true for tomorrow and the next day. So improvement is incremental. And I'm fine with that. I'm fine that, that, that the bend of Bitcoin is an arc towards progress. Um, now, from a structural standpoint, I have to brag a little about a little bit about some of our, our mission at Orange Pill app. So for those that don't know about what we do with Orange Pill app, we're building the social layer of, or we're at least trying to foster the social layer of Bitcoin. The, the social layer of Bitcoin, it's it's the I'm people. just going to show it to people whilst you're oh, talking. Please do. Yeah. <laughs> so, so our whole goal is to connect Bitcoiners. Like that's we can, we can connect with people online. Like this is fantastic what we're doing right now. Um, but I feel extra connected to you because I've met you in person. I gave you a hug and we, we got to meet one another. And, and like Carrie's doing right now is like, you can scroll and find people that are in your area right now and actually have an in-person connection and in real life connection with another Bitcoin. There's just a little bit of extra magic that happens. And you think about what the value proposition of that is. If these CBDCs, if I'm wrong, and these CBDCs are really bad and really egregious, every rancher that you shook hands with in person that accepts Bitcoin, every person that can fix a computer when your computer's broken that, that, that accepts Bitcoin, the value proposition of that relationship is going to have never been more valuable than when CBDCs are trying to take all of your freedoms away. Because those social connections are the next most important thing to actually holding Bitcoin. Like you stack sats and then we say you stack friends who stack sats. You try to find other people that are in that economy. Now, later this year, we're going to have our orange pages roll out. So not only will you be able to find Bitcoiners that live close to you, you're going to be able to find all of the merchants that accept Bitcoin in your area. And now I fully expect that when we launch this, 
some people are going to be disappointed with how few people accept Bitcoin in their area. That's just going to be the case, especially if they're in a rural, rural area. But this is where the mission of Bitcoin comes in. And this is why Orange Pill app is such a powerful tool. So now let me back up a second. On the, on the, the top level, on the big level, if you guys follow what Jack Maulers and Strike are doing, they're, they're orange pilling like Walmart. <laughs> like Strike might have Walmart payment terminals for Bitcoin within the next 12 to 18 months. So Target, Walmart, big giant companies, Amazon, Strike, and those types of companies that elevate at that really high level are orange pilling the upper echelon of business. And what we're at Orange Pill App doing is we're orange pilling at the lower level of the economy, the, the, the mom and pop shop on the corner, because what you're going to be able to do is as a Bitcoiner, so whether you're me, the marketing guy for Orange Pill App, or you're just somebody that's on Orange Pill App, you could walk into, say, uh, a nail salon and you could say, hey, ma'am, I, I, I know you have, you know, you have a great business here. Um, I don't know if you accept Bitcoin. If you know anything about it, chances are most people are not going to know anything about Bitcoin. They're just so, you know, preoccupied with running their business. But you can say, I don't know if you know anything about the Bitcoin community, but there's a bull run going on right now. All of the people in this app have a lot of money because they have this Bitcoin thing. And guess what? All these people in this app pay to be in this app. They hold Bitcoin and they are diehard Bitcoiners, diehard plebs. If you say today that you accept Bitcoin in this business, every dude or girl in this app is either going to come by and get a pedicure from you this week, or they're going to buy one from their wife because they're looking for an excuse to support the circular economy. And with Orange Pill app, there's, there's, there's other websites that show where you can you know get a few things in Bitcoin. We're actually partnering with, with BTC Maps, by the way. So so they're bringing the supply side, you know, businesses that will, you know, that, that will accept Bitcoin, but we're actually going to be able to go in with the demand side of the equation. We're able to go to businesses and say, look at, we have 50 Bitcoiners in your area that will come here this week. If you, if you just want to unlock that door and those people, these merchants, they're not going to be orange pilled because we explained the value proposition of Bitcoin. They're not going to be orange pilled because we told them about the scarcity of it. They're going to be like my mom who learned how to use email, not because she understood SMTP and how that protocol works to send email across the internet. My mom just typed out a message to her friend, hit send, and it worked. And now she's an internet adopter. These merchants are going to be adopters of Bitcoin just because what do they want? They want customers. Orange Pill App's going to bring them the customers. Um, what do they want? They want access to more people. We're bringing that all of a sudden they're a Bitcoiner. The, the flywheel is going to go off the chain. And so to those people, yes, you can't buy a house on there yet. The infrastructure is being built. The way my mind works is I see this as an inevitability. I don't want to be at the late side of this adoption cycle. That's fine. You can, you can get the assurance of like, oh, yay, people are buying, buying houses in Bitcoin. If you wait to get into Bitcoin to that, to that point, you are, in fact, a late adopter and will benefit the least from this. You will still benefit because a Bitcoin standard is going to benefit everybody. But the rising tide of Bitcoin is going to benefit. A rising tide lifts all boats. Every, every boat that's in Bitcoin is going to rise with Bitcoin, anybody that's involved at any level of Bitcoin. So you can adopt it later. You can adopt it now. Um, but for me... I, it's an inevitability. I can't not adopt it at this point. It would seem foolish and imprudent to me. I love the way you talk about it. I just love your level of conviction 
Um, and it's so powerful and it's so, so compelling. Uh, I want to talk about inflation for a moment because we talk about inflation all the time in the, uh, in the Bitcoin community. We all feel like we've got a handle on it, but the typical equation goes, you know, print money, create inflation, albeit with a, you know, a bit of a lag effect. You've got a formula in here for inflation. Uh, a, I want to know where it came from, and B, I want to know how you measure a couple of these things. So you've got currency supply, and I know that's measured by M2, times velocity. So I'm curious to know how we measure velocity, divided by the value of all wealth, which is the cumulative value, you've got this defined here, uh, of all the assets and services in the economy. So it's the combined wealth of all citizens of a country. So first of all, where did that, uh, where did that formula come from? And secondly, can you just explain to me how we measure velocity and then kind of put the whole thing together so that I get it? <laughs> yeah, great questions. So um, the, I got that formula from Mike Maloney. I don't know if anybody's familiar with him. He's a he's a famous gold bug, a famous economist. He's, yeah. he's very friendly to Bitcoin. Has kind of dabbled in the crypto space a bit. I don't know where he's at currently. I highly suggest anybody that wants to get like a, a non-Bitcoin view on inflation. And, um, you know, so sometimes it's nice to strip away all the Bitcoin talk and just hear about economics from a, a standpoint that doesn't have this biased towards Bitcoin. Everything I listen to is biased towards Bitcoin. I think it's right, um, but sometimes it's refreshing to, to take that away. Um, so he has a 10-part documentary series on, it's called The Hidden Secrets of Money. It's on, it's on YouTube. And here's one interesting data point about that. I saw that, that, that documentary series probably in 2018, somewhere around there. I remember watching it because I was bored when you know there were sh shutdowns for COVID. So right when COVID hit, I remember watching it again. And his most popular video in that series was episode number seven. Go watch episode number seven. Talks about helicopter money. You're going to feel like he's talking about today. He wrote this book that the that the series is based on back in 2008 or 2007. It sounds like prophetic. It sounds, I mean, it, so episode seven, start with that. And then you go back and, and go back through the, the series. But anyways, the most viewed episode was episode seven. Before COVID, it had 50,000 views. After COVID, I checked, I remember checking it a few months later. I'm like, I wonder if people, more people are watching that. So it had been online. It had been on YouTube for six years and it got 50,000 views. Two months later, it had 1.5 million views. So it exploded. Somehow people found out about this and they're sitting in their homes for COVID. And like, I want to ask more questions about money. Beautiful, brilliant. And, and I think I want to ask more questions about inflation, right? Because they're, well, I'm getting all the stimulus. And so uh, I want to kind of see what's happening here. So that's where I got the, the, the equation from. But to me, that's the most sensible equation. I think it's the most accurate way to, to define it. And he actually does some prima facie uh, evidence for that as well. So things that are obvious on their face about inflation. So he talks about every, we're all sick of hearing about Weimar Germany, but the, the example he uses is Weimar Germany. Most people don't know that early on after the, the war, excuse me, before the war, there was a lot of stimulus. So people think that all of the economic problems came because of World War One, and that's why Weimar Germany had this huge hyperinflation. They had economic stimulus before the war, and it didn't create an inflationary problem. And then even after the war, right away when the war ended, the government did um, like incredible stimulus 
And it didn't make inflation happen because everybody was taking that capital and they were putting it under their mattress. There was no velocity of that capital. So it didn't matter that they printed trillions of marks. It was under their mattress. So there was no velocity, therefore no inflation. So, so currency supply, I understand why people say currency supply leads to inflation because it does. Like if you have it long enough, eventually people will feel like, well, now I have a billion dollars under the mattress. Now I can start spending money, right? Like at a certain point, you're going to feel confident to unlock that money. But if you just went through a war, you just went through a recession, or you just went through a pandemic, you're typically not going to spend as lavishly, even if you have a lot of money. And that's what we saw with COVID. We didn't see initial inflation, even though the numbers were, were jacked, it was still pretty high, but we saw a huge spike in inflation once people felt wealthy after COVID. You know, my, my 401k is doing well, my house is up in value, my, my savings is up because I got stimulus and I was able, my, my work still paid me and all this kind of stuff. And so it was after there was a lagging effect. It wasn't until that money came out from under the mattress and it kicked in and to the velocity. So velocity is just measured by, by gross domestic product. It's just measured by GDP. So that's the only way. It, now, I think this is one of the benefits of CBDCs. Don't, don't murder me. But I think economists will love CBDCs for the fact that it'll be the best measurement of economic data that we'll ever have. I mean, we really will. Like we'll be able to measure economic metrics. We'll be able to see the, 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 um, the impacts of tariffs. We'll be able to you know, see the impact of taxes and stimulus and all these things in real time. They're going to have the, so we'll understand economics probably better because of CBDCs. Um, that's the last nice thing I'll say about CBDCs. Um, but the velocity leads to inflation unless unless you have high currency supply, high velocity. Both of those things typically lead to inflation. But if more things are produced, if more services are sold, then um, or more wealth is produced, which is calculated by the market capitalization of all things. So if you just take the market capitalization of all stocks, all bonds, all cash in reserve, all, all these different things. So it's also in count, uh, accounting for a currency. Um, if all those things stay in balance, you can have theoretically no inflation. You could have, everybody could have a billion dollars and capital could be flowing through the economy really well. But if we just have a massive explosion in how much wealth everybody has and how much goods and services are being bought and sold, in proportion to one another, the supply and demand of the economy never gets out of whack, then you don't get inflation. The problem is it always does get out of whack. <laughs> supply and demand doesn't always meet and you will eventually get inflation. That is such a great explanation. That is outstanding. I love that. And I'll make sure to link to the, um, uh, the YouTube series in the show notes. Uh, I'm getting a little conscious of time. Uh, there's so many good things in the book. Uh, one of the things that I think is just spectacular, but uh, I don't know that it's necessary really to get into, is your description of SHA-256 and the cryptography of, um, of Bitcoin. So in terms of people who are concerned that Bitcoin can be hacked, um, I've got two questions about this, actually. <laughs> One is about the security of Bitcoin. The other is, if hackers are so damn good, why aren't people hacking CBDCs? <laughs> wow, that's a, that's a great question. the growth of that. If they're so damn smart, these hackers, why aren't they hacking the things that I actually want to be hacked? <laughs> <laughs> that's actually... 
That's fantastic. I've literally never thought about that before. That's so funny. You just kind of blew my mind right there. So we should just, we can, we can totally do a, a fear campaign on CBDCs of like, do you want your bank account hacked? I mean, that's a, all the credit agencies have been hacked. Like banks have been hacked. Like why do right. we think CBD? So it's funny that, that like, oh, they've, they figured out the magic, the, you know, the magic sauce that's going to make these things work. I think, I think you're onto something. Great. That's our sales campaign. I like it. I like it. Uh, do you want to briefly as a wrap up only because I've never seen the cryptography explained in this way. And because uh, I think it's still a concern for some people new to Bitcoin out there. Uh, and because to be honest, um, whilst the monetary proposition is relatively easy to wrap your head around the cryptography proposition and the tech proposition can be harder for people like me like i can pick up economics 101 pretty quickly but tech for a non-tech person is overwhelming and the assumption is surely in some way it can be hacked and what you do here on page 135 or 134 and 135 of your book is spectacular. So uh, would you mind just talking us through that a little bit? Yeah, and so I'll preface this by saying I'm inherently not a technical person either. I, in high school, I took geometry twice because I'm not like particularly good at math, but you know, certain things make sense to me. And, and once you've had it explained, um, I, I think it helps. Um, so, I think one of the, the the most drop the mic moments that you'll get from people opposing Bitcoin that makes most Bitcoiners just sweat bullets right off the bat uh, is that they'll say, did you know that the NSA created Bitcoin? And so like, they'll just say that and you say, oh, because because some smart guy somewhere will take the nugget of truth in that. And then they'll take that to mean that that Satoshi Nakamoto was actually the NSA. No, what is true is that the NSA, the National Security Agency, I, I had to, like, literally, I was looking on my computer, what, what is the A for? If it, but but uh, the NSA, uh, they created the hashing algorithm SHA-256. And that sounds scary. Like, But the reason why that's not scary is because SHA-256 is an open source hashing algorithm, meaning that anybody can look at it at any time, you understand the rules of it. Um, like, for example, it doesn't matter who created mathematics, right? Because we all know the rules by which math works. Like if I told you that it actually wasn't God that created mathematics, it was the devil that created mathematics, you wouldn't stop using math. You'd be like, well, that, that's unfortunate that, that, that the devil created it. I thought it was God, but you know what? Guess what? Two plus two still equals four. I can always prove that. And so the creator of it doesn't really matter. It's how it works and it's open source and we know all the rules of it. And when people, when they, when they just scratch the surface on what cryptography is. So let me back up. So the fact that the NSA created SHA-256 does not matter. Literally doesn't matter at all. So it's, it's a true, it's a true thing. Wear it with a badge of honor. Don't be afraid of that. And, and just know that it, that doesn't matter. The next part is when people understand basic cryptography, they'll understand that 
uh, that there's there's always like a master key to the cryptography, right? So if uh, one of the things I, I, one of the examples I give in the book is something called the Caesar cipher. It was what the Roman soldiers used to do when they were sending messages back in the day across great distances. So if a general on the battlefield wanted to send a message to another general, he had to encrypt the message because what if his messenger, you know, what if it says, oh, tomorrow we strike at dawn, and then their messenger gets intercepted by the enemy, and then they get ambushed tomorrow at dawn because the, the message never got there. So they had they had a, a, a an encryption. So it was, the Caesar cipher was was easy. It's I'm gonna write out my message, and then I'm gonna go three letters back in the alphabet, and that's that's what I'm gonna write out. And so then the guy receiving it knows. He just writes out all the letters I wrote out, and then he just goes three letters forward in the alphabet, and it unscrambles the message. So the master key to that is three letters back in the alphabet or three letters forward in the alphabet. That's the master key. So some people that have a little bit of understanding of cryptography, they go, that's really cool, but wait, so what's the master key for Bitcoin? Because if it's cryptography, Somebody somewhere knows how many letters forward or backwards you go so they can unscramble all the messages and they can unlock all of the money. So this is what's brilliant about SHA-256. It's a, an algorithm. It's a mathematical algorithm that every time it runs, all it does is create a new random number. So that master key is being recreated every 10 minutes. And that, that's all that's happening. And so, yes, there is a master key, but the master key only unlocks the right to mine the next block of Bitcoin. So the powers of that master key are very precise, and it's only going to somebody that used massive amounts of computing power securing the network to put that block on the space. So you're giving it to a good actor on the network. And they only have the power to put the next 10 minutes worth of transactions on the network. So they're, you're limiting their power. And every 10 minutes, the, the new master code is redone. But the master code only lets you unlock the next, uh, next block on the network. And so that's what SHA-256 is. It's a, it's, think of it like this. It's just a random number generator. And that's all it does. It's creating a new cryptographic code every time it runs. It's brilliant. It's a really, really good system. Um, but there's no master key out there that's going to unlock Terry's Bitcoin or Brian's Bitcoin or anything like that. Very reassuring. And you even get into numbers here. Um, and I'm just going to read this a little bit because I thought it was just really cool. Uh, this cri cryptographic protection secures every transaction and function on the network, which not only protects the transaction, but it also protects individual user identities and Bitcoin holdings from any potential bad actors, which is what you've just said. So then you get into this thing, SHA-256 is so secure that cracking its hash is the equivalent of guessing a number between one and 115, I don't know how to pronounce this, 115 quatuavigintillion. <laughs> yep, I think, you, I think you said it right. I don't know. And you say that's a 78 digit number for reference. A billion is a 10 digit number. A billion is a 10 digit number. And they've got to guess a number between one and 115 <laughs> And that's a 78 digit number. And I like this. This means that the chance of accidentally guessing a hash that could unlock someone's Bitcoin against their will would be one in two to the power of 256. Mm -hmm. And again, for comparison, a deck of cards has 50 
two unique cards in it. It's mathematically probable that no two decks in the history of all time have ever been shuffled in the exact same way. Two to the power of 256 is so much more massively complex than a 52 card deck. Our minds really have a hard time grasping the magnitude. What a quote. You're full of great quotes in there. Some are from other people. Some are your own. I'm going to tell everybody to go out and buy this book, buy three copies and hand two on to your family and friends and orange pill. It's seriously as an orange pilling book. I think it stands neck and neck with um, Saifedine. I think it's just so simple and so clean and comes at it from so many different angles. Just a fabulous book. Uh, Brian, is there any final words, any final plugs you would like to do for Orange Pill or for your book? Yeah, no, <laughs> I mean, you, messages? you plugged the book fantastically. Thank you so much for the platform on it because I do, I thoroughly enjoy talking about this stuff. It's fun. Um, and, you know, the, one of the, some of the things we didn't cover in the book are we, I, I try to venture out where not a lot of uh, Bitcoin only books go. I talk a lot about the crypto industry. I talk a lot about altcoins um, throughout the book. And the reason being is because I myself went through an altcoin phase and came back to a Bitcoin only stance. I think a lot of people go through an altcoin phase and 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 because we don't fully understand the tenets of Bitcoin, um, we waste time, we waste money, uh, we 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 brown pill people. So we we wake them up to oh, you should learn about blockchain, and then we we get them down the same rabbit hole that we're that we're lost on. Um, and so I hope that by by the time people read the book, they've gone through their Bitcoin altcoin back to Bitcoin phase so that they're ready to orange people. And uh, I try to be very amicable about it. So if you if you have a friend that's in the altcoin space and the Web3 space, I think they could pick this book up and it's amicable enough to them. I, I just like I was telling you, I just got out in my, in my living room. A documentary crew came and we're doing a documentary. They're doing a documentary called Toxic. It's about toxic maxis. And and I say there's two types of maxis. There's there's the hellfire and brimstone maxi, like <laughs> you better repent or you're going to hell. And so turn to Bitcoin. And then there's like the what the camp I'm in is like the Jesus ate with sinners. Like, yeah, I I this is the truth, but I'm gonna hang out with you and I'm gonna love on you through the process. And so that's how I kind of view the altcoin community is like. There are neighbors, and I think the best way we expand the Bitcoin community is by welcoming in. I mean, imagine if we orange built all of crypto tomorrow, how much bigger the Bitcoin community would be with people that share some of the, the, the values that we have. Maybe not all the values we have as Bitcoiners. So if you do have, I think a lot of people are finding that their, their altcoin friends are, are finding a lot of value in this. And I, I, I talk about here's some of the things that are interesting in that space. And if these things flourish and are robust enough, they might be built on a third or fourth layer to Bitcoin if they work. Because ultimately, if those things work, you don't want them running on Solana because Solana is really unsecure. You want them running on the, the world's only decentralized mechanism in all of humanity. It's not the only decentralized crypto asset or cryptocurrency. It's humanity, all of history's only decentralized mechanism ever. Every other system of power, every other system of government, every other system of, of, of corporate structure is centralized to some degree, even if it's a democracy or whatever you want to call it, there's, there's still economic powers that centralize power. Bitcoin's humanity's only decentralized mechanism. And so that's why it's important to, to, the, to the crypto community as well. Um, so having said that, 
please check out Orange Pill app. If somebody is in this, you know, you're listening to this and they're saying, how do I, how do I, I, I I'm in Bitcoin. I want to take action. I want to help build in Bitcoin. We're building the social layer. And when I say we're building the social layer, I don't mean me, Mateo, the devs, our advisory board. I mean, like me and the other plebs and Mateo, like we're all part of this community carry as well. Like we get to these in-person meetings and we, you, you, you share a, a drink with somebody, you grab lunch with somebody and you talk with, you know, talk Bitcoin for hours. Like that, that's just, it's so magic when you get to be un, uninterrupted. This is fantastic. I'm having so much fun, but I mean, it might even be a little bit more fun if we were just hanging out and just grabbing a coffee, those, those types of things. So um, in real life connections are really, really important. I think they're going to be really important in the future. I earlier, I did share the, the pessimistic out view, the outlook of why you would need orange pill app, right? Like if the CBDCs are terrible, you're going to want to make sure you shook a rancher's hand and you know where your food's coming from and you can buy food and clothes for your kids in Bitcoin. Like that's the pessimistic out outlook. The optimistic outlook, if you're on the ground floor of the Bitcoin economy, your life is going to change in ways that it would have never changed otherwise. As you ride this wave of Bitcoin innovation, you're going to ride that wave up as well. Like look back at the internet economy. Who were the people that were the early adopters of the internet economy? Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, those people. Like, what are they doing now? Are they worried about where they're going to eat tonight? No, they're not worried about paying their credit card bill. They're launching rockets into outer space for fun because they were early adopters of the internet community. So, or the internet economy. So we as Bitcoiners, we couldn't, we couldn't start PayPal. We couldn't do all of those things necessarily. Like, like, only so many people can can create the next cool company. But what we as Bitcoiners can do is we can participate in the circular economy. And there's this there's there's this network effect of growth that happens when one more person connects to the, the circular economy, the circular economy becomes exponentially more valuable. So you can actually make the Bitcoin circular economy exponentially more valuable by making yourself a part of it. You're doing it for yourself, but you're doing it for everybody else too. My Bitcoin will be will have more utility if somebody listening to this podcast signs up for Orange Bill app and connects with other Bitcoiners and becomes part of that economy. So thank you if you do that and you're in the audience today. Amazing. Ryan, I'm going to go let you get some, <clears throat> sorry, excuse me, let you get some water because your capacity to talk... <laughs> And to talk fluently and clearly, uh, consistently is spectacular, but mm. I'm guessing you need some water by now. You've been more than generous with your time. Your um. water's empty. <laughs> I'm not surprised. Uh, you've been incredibly generous. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me here on Bitcoin People. Be well. Thank you so much. First, they came for the freedom protesters in Melbourne. Like they're nothing because a lot of what they're spreading their unvaccinated hate speech. Then they came for the truckers in Canada. I right? said nothing because oh, look how unbossed and terrible and boorish they are. Oh, you know, we had to get them out of polite society. And then they came for Nigel Farage. I said nothing because oh, he's that crazy Brexit guy. Yeah, yeah, we need to crack down on things like that. And then they came for my neighbour who was voting uh, no to the void. And I said nothing because. Oh, we really could say it's the voice. I'm sure he was spreading misinformation. And then they came for, uh, you know, my uh, friend who had a problem with men going to women's transfers with a wig on.
a little limited kind of time, but uh, we want to be nice, but we want to be friendly to people, and uh, you know, we can't engage with hate speech, so the government office didn't know what it's doing, and then they came for me.